Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to move into the world of literature and keep going with our uh, chronological uh, survey. Uh, last time we talked about um, Chaucer, when we talked about literature, and Chaucer was very firmly in the Middle English period of literature. If you look at the language of Chaucer, this is a language of Middle English. Uh, today we're going to move into Shakespeare and the Tempest. Now, most people think Shakespeare would probably be considered Middle English as well, um, but actually Shakespeare is part of the modern English period. Um, there were several differences that occurred between the Old English and the or between the Middle English and the modern English. In the Middle English period, remember, nothing was standardized. You didn't have to spell words the same way. You could spell them any way you wanted. Also, some of the people were still using the thorn, the eth, and the yoke, depending on where they were. When you get to Shakespeare's time period, uh, Shakespeare is actually using modern English. Everybody writing in the time of Shakespeare is using the same alphabet, the same 26 letters we use today. Um, they're also using standardized spellings. Um, you can't just spell a word any way that you choose. Uh, they've had dictionaries that have been written. Uh, there's also a shift in the vowels, uh, which I'll cover at some other point, it's known as the Great Vowel Shift. All of the vowels have changed their sounds uh, by the time of Shakespeare. Also, in the time of Chaucer, there were no silent letters. Um, Middle English did not have silent letters. Every letter that was written was pronounced. So the words night and night... Um, like the time of uh, the day, and the person on the horse uh, in Middle English would not have been pronounced the same. They would have been nicta and kenicta. Um, by the time you get to Shakespeare, uh, those letters have become silent, the same that they are today. Now, one of the reasons that Shakespeare doesn't sound as much like modern English is that he's using what's known as poetic diction. And during this time period... Um, this is the way literature would have been written. Uh, this is not the way people actually spoke. If you were to get into a time machine and go back to the time of Shakespeare, they would not be speaking the way that Shakespeare's characters were speaking. Uh, this was a special language that was used for literature. So it was even archaic by that time. Um, people were not using that in everyday speech. Uh, another big shift between Chaucer and Shakespeare is that Shakespeare is actually uh, considered one of the sort of uh, big writers uh, internationally. Uh, Chaucer and the Middle English period, uh, English is not really one of the big languages of literature. Uh, in Chaucer's time period, the big languages of literature, would, in Europe anyway, would have been uh, Italian and uh, French. English was kind of considered a backwater country. Uh, it was considered a backwater literature. And even within England, um, Chaucer and the other writers in English uh, were not considered the higher writers. Uh, the people that were considered the high art writers of the time period were generally writing in either French or Latin. So the uh, advancement of English as kind of a uh, 
literary uh, language, as a literary uh, source, uh, really takes place slightly before Shakespeare's time period. And this has to do with the elevation um, of station of England itself. You know, during Chaucer's time period, England is not really one of the major powers of the world. Uh, the major powers in the world are Italy, Spain, um, France to some degree, uh, the Ottoman, uh, the Ottomans. Uh, so the the empire, not the Ottomans. Sorry, this is pre-Ottoman Empire, um, but the uh, Arabic cultures. So you have all of these uh, other centers of power, and England is not really part of that during uh, Chaucer's time period. This changes because Shakespeare is writing uh, towards the end of uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign and into the beginning of uh, King James I's reign. So Elizabeth is the one that really transforms England from being a second-rate power to being the dominant world power. And part of this happens when the British Navy defeats the Spanish Armada. Once the Spanish Armada is defeated, uh, Spain sort of loses their place as the number one world power, and England starts to capture that. So Shakespeare is very much in a much more prestigious England as far as world power, but also as far as um, literary recognition. Other, other countries are recognizing uh, England as sort of a major producer of literature. But even so, in this time period, a lot of what Shakespeare does uh, has to do with imitation. Uh, if you notice, a lot of his plays are uh, set in Italy, uh, especially, and this is because a lot of the uh, literature uh, is still Italian, uh, is still considered one of the big literatures of the Renaissance, is coming out of Italy. And so there's still a lot of imitation of the Italians. But Shakespeare is kind of moving the language towards um, being not just an imitation of other traditions, but sort of having a voice of its own. Now, The Tempest, I often feel, is one of his most interesting plays, um, mainly because The Tempest has a lot of things going on. If you really want to look at uh, a lot of issues in England and in the world at the time period, I don't think any of his other plays quite capture as many as The Tempest. Uh, his other ones, you know, capture lots of issues about life uh, of the time period, but I think The Tempest does a better job of having a wider spectrum. You could probably have an entire career just writing papers about The Tempest because there are so many different angles to write about. Uh, I'm not obviously going to be able to cover all of them in depth uh, in a short podcast, but I do want to kind of talk about some of the elements of The Tempest. Uh, one of them which uh, really sets it into the time period is that it is very much a play about colonization. Uh, this is the beginnings really of Britain as a colonial empire. This is only a decade or so after uh, the founding of Jamestown. Uh, this is a short time period after the founding of the colonies by England in the, in the Caribbean. So this is sort of the start of 
Britain as a major empire and as really as the major empire. Uh, Spain is still larger, but Spain is starting to kind of uh, come apart at this point, and, and England is starting to become what will eventually be the large empire that it is. And so when you're looking at the Tempest, uh, Shakespeare is actually bringing out a lot of these things about colonization. You have a duke who's deposed um, and basically has to flee for his life, taking his daughter, and he ends up on an island. Well, what ends up having happening on the island is he ends up becoming a colonizer. Uh, he enslaves the population that's there, even though there's not very many people there. It's basically Ariel and Caliban and Sycorax. Sycorax we don't hear much about because the Tempest comes in uh, years after they've been there, about 12 years after they've been there, and she's already been dispatched. And Caliban, her son, has been uh, enslaved. Now, Ariel was freed um, from uh, imprisonment by Sycorax and sort of becomes an indentured servant. So one of the things that you see in The Tempest is you actually see sort of the two types of slavery. You see the uh, slave uh, in the more uh, complete sense in Caliban, uh, someone who is completely enslaved, has no uh, expectations uh, that they will ever be freed, um, that this is sort of something that was considered to be a permanent condition. And then you have the indentured servant, um, which is slavery, but slavery under a uh, limited amount of time. Um, Ariel would be an indentured servant. He had sworn to serve uh, for so many years. Now Prospero, who is the uh, duke that was uh, deposed and forced to flee the country with his daughter, um, promises him that he's only going to have to serve him for so long. Uh, but Prospero keeps sort of pushing back um, and, and doesn't really want to let Ariel go until everything he needs from Ariel has been done. And this is also something that did occur with indentured servants. Um, they, would, they were supposed to be for a limited amount of time period, but often the person that they were indentured to would find ways to keep pushing that back. Oh, well, these other expenses came up because of taking care of you and you can't afford to pay for this, so now you have to work these expenses off. Uh, and this is sort of what he does, what Prospero does with Ariel. Uh, he keeps pushing his time back as, as a slave, as an indentured servant, until he can get everything out of him he needs. And basically what he needs is to uh, reestablish his position um, in Milan. Now Caliban is um, really a lot of what Britain was starting to get into with the African slave trade, but also with the, the uh, enslavement of indigenous peoples. Uh, you have to remember this is pretty early in the British Empire, and Britain is sort of trying the different, um, I guess you'd call it, uh, types of slavery. Now this is definitely something that looking back uh, with 21st century eyes, we can see how 
horrible this is, and there were a lot of people that saw it was horrible even at that time period. Um, Shakespeare was not a world traveler. Shakespeare would have gotten his information um, through reports that came back from the various colonies, through things that he had read um, about Spanish colonization and things like that. So his knowledge of um, colonization of the slave trade would be much more limited. But even as limited as it is, there are some telling things that uh, come out when Caliban speaks. You know, one of the ways that um, the uh, idea of slavery was sold was the fact that, well, you know, these, these people are less than we are, so this isn't really a bad thing. And Caliban is definitely painted as being not fully uh, uh, human the way that the main characters are fully human. So there's very much a dehumanization of Caliban. And in fact, part of the reason uh, given is that uh, Caliban tries to um, have sex with Miranda, who is Prospero's daughter. Now this again sort of plays into the uh, racist stereotype of, you know, the other, um, and, and you have to kind of keep them under control because they're savages and they'll try to um, have sex and, you know, reproduce as much as they can. So this is a very unenlightened view in a lot of ways uh, about Caliban. This is very much the ways that people of Shakespeare's time would have seen these things. But there was also sort of a sense that these people uh, who were enslaved didn't know any better. Uh, and Caliban is definitely not that person. Caliban definitely knows that he's been wronged. He definitely knows that he's had his island stolen from him. That everything that rightfully belongs to him has been stolen through trickery. Has been stolen through force. And so this is a little bit of a different perspective. This is not uh, so much that, well, the colonizers have all the right to do everything they want, and that's just the way the world works. Uh, this is much more of an idea that this is not as universally wonderful as people uh, tried to portray it as. In some ways, this is more, much more enlightened than even much later perspectives. Uh, one of the things about the slavery uh, period in the United States up through the end of slavery and even after slavery, uh, this is an attitude that I've heard uh, into the 20th and 21st century, uh, was the fact, was the attitude that everyone was happy that way. That, you know, the, the South was just this wonderful place. Uh, the owners were happy. The slaves were happy. Everyone was happy. And, uh, the, you know, the terrible North that uh, came down and ruined everything. Um, this, is, this is very much an attitude that unfortunately still exists um, in deniers, uh, in people who deny how horrible the uh, institution of slavery was in people who want to say, well, this is just something that was inevitable. Uh, this is just the way things were back then. Um, people didn't, weren't upset about it then. Uh, they were completely content with it. 
Well, the problem with that is if people were perfectly content with it, why do we have a record of so many slave rebellions uh, occurring from very early days of slavery and going all the way through uh, the time period of slavery? So if it was something that everybody loved and everybody thought was a good idea, both the owners and the slaves, uh, why were there constant rebellions? Why were there constant, uh, you know, slaves that were escaping? Um, you know, if, if this was a wonderful situation and everyone was happy, uh, you wouldn't have that. If everyone was was living the good life and happy the way they were, you, you would not have people trying to rebel. You would not have people trying to escape. So one of the things that you kind of see from this is there's a lot of propaganda that starts in the beginning of uh, the period of colonization, starting all the way back into the time of Shakespeare. Um, there was a lot of justifications that went on, and none of those justifications hold any water. Those justifications are all um, things that uh, when you really look at what's going on and you really look what you what they're saying uh, there's no way that these things can be justified uh, and the tempest kind of is a beginning of a conversation about this period and it doesn't just take it from one perspective although it does take it from the dominant perspective mostly um, it does start to open doors of maybe this isn't what everyone is being told. Maybe this isn't a good thing. And I, I tend to wonder, um, since this is these are not British people that Shakespeare is using in this, that these are the Italians uh, from Milan, if Shakespeare is not kind of pushing that back a little bit to give a little bit of perspective. Um, because if you kind of implicate your own people... Uh, they will tend to uh, reject it. They will tend to uh, see it as, uh, well, you're, you're accusing us. But if you can do the same thing with a different country, with a different group of people, the Italians, um, it sort of gives a little bit of distance and allows for that criticism to be made. Uh, one of the things that I've always believed and always held about writers is that writers are never people who are fully satisfied with the world as it is. Um, they're never happy with reality as it is. Uh, they are always trying to critique reality, to show different perspectives of reality, to create something where it is a better place. Um, they, they do a lot of criticism, even when it doesn't seem like they're doing criticism. Now, a lot of this you know, is is speculation, and you have to wonder how much of this uh, comes from the fact that I have 20th and 21st century eyes looking back on this uh, horrible institution. But if you look at what a lot of writers have done throughout history, um, they have always been kind of ahead of where everything else is, far ahead of society. Things that society criticizes uh, eventually comes to criticize openly writers had been criticizing probably for generations before. So one of the areas of the Tempest that really um, Shakespeare kind of opens the door on 
is the entire issue of colonization. And what does this mean? Now, he doesn't, again, take a completely negative uh, appeal or approach to it, but he does sort of bring up some of the critiques. And as I, as I said, part of that is because you can see from what Caliban says and from what Ariel says that this is not a situation they're happy with. This is not a situation that they would have chosen for themselves. This is something they're forced into doing. Um, the other parts of this that uh, it really brings to light is the sort of class distinctions. Now, from a Marxist perspective, you definitely see very clear class distinctions between the characters. Um, and you see that only the upper class characters are really seen as important. Um, they are given the serious, uh, um, you know, the serious speeches, the serious uh, dramatic lines, um, with the exception of Caliban. Um, the lower classes... Uh, and even includes Caliban in some spots, are used more as comic relief. So Caliban kind of is, is this odd character because he straddles being a lower class character who's just there to be made fun of and to provide comic relief, but also um, gives a lot of speeches that are very much critical of what's going on, that are very much uh, speeches you would expect to be made only by an upper class uh, character. Because remember, one of the things that we talked about with the traditions of literature is that up until the Romantic period, which comes much later than this, lower class characters were always there only for comic relief. All of the serious dramatic characters were gods and goddesses, kings and queens, uh, knights, you know. These, these were the type that were considered the appropriate subject matter of serious drama, of serious poetry, of serious stories. Uh, and so you have a little bit even of Shakespeare kind of being ahead of the curve as far as the way he portrays the classes, because most of it is what you would expect the lower class characters drinking, acting foolish, having silly ideas. Um, but they also... You, you have this sense of Caliban is lower class, but he is making serious dramatic speeches, serious speeches that are critiquing the way things are. Now, this might be something that Shakespeare brought in because it's the only way he could make that criticism. Um, because you have to remember that if you criticize the upper classes and the way things are too much, uh, you tend to run the risk of uh, either being just silenced or you could be imprisoned or you could be executed or lots of other things could happen. Um, this is not something that was readily allowed, was a critique of the upper classes. But if you put this criticism into a lower class character and do it as satire, uh, you could kind of get it under the radar that way. And one of the things that you do see with the lower class characters is they are attempting to overthrow the power structure. Um, they do have these schemes where they can supplant the power that is and put themselves in there in its place. 
uh, and you have the same kinds of things that happened with the upper class characters. Uh, Prospero's brother um, overthrew him uh, and took over his place. And Prospero, in turn, is trying to kind of reverse that and get his position back. So you do have the parallel criticisms going on. And this is one of the things about Shakespeare that, and especially this play, that I find to be amazing, is that it does in some ways come across as a product of the time period, but it also comes across as something that is far beyond the time period. And I think this is one of the things about great literature, uh, is that it not only reflects where it came from and reflects the values of where it came from and where it's situated, but it also calls those things into question. Uh, and Shakespeare definitely does that with this play. Uh, this is uh, often thought to be his last play that he wrote on his own. He uh, probably uh, co-authored a few plays after this, uh, but this is considered to be his last major uh, play, uh, which means he's up there in age. He's got a well-established, um, uh, you know, uh, well-established, credible position, uh, and it means he can get away with a little more. Uh, plus, if he's, you know, suffers any punishment for him for this, uh, he's older and he's not going to have to deal with the punishment for much longer because uh, he's already getting up there in years. So the amount of uh, revealing that occurs in The Tempest is kind of amazing. You see the class struggles, you see the uh, colonization and the one side, you know, kind of playing it off as this is a wonderful thing, everybody's going to be happy, and then the other side saying, basically, you've stolen everything from us, you've stolen our freedom, you've stolen our humanity, uh, and you've reduced us to this. Uh, this lowly state, and there's no sense that we can ever get out of this. And this is, again, going back to Ariel and Caliban. Um, Caliban is in a position where he doesn't see that there will ever be an end to this, that this is a permanent state that he would have to be in, that if Prospero were to stay, if he had any children, his children would have to be in, whereas Ariel is much more the indentured servant who has a limit, uh, a time limit, even though that time limit gets pushed. Now, the other revealing thing in The Tempest has to do with Miranda. You have only one female character in this play. Uh, you have a couple that are mentioned in passing, and Sycorax and uh, Miranda's attendance when she's a child, but Miranda is the only one that is present. Uh, in, in the current action. And she is very much a reflection of what upper-class women were expected to be. You know, her father hides her away, um, kind of shelters her from other men until he finds the one suitable. And then he kind of uses her as a bargaining chip to kind of merge his blood bloodline with the royal bloodline. Um, this is very much what uh, things were like for upper-class women. Upper-class women were expected to marry for position. Uh, marriage was never about love. You know, they tried to 
play that love part, but you, you, once you look at what's going on, you realize that Miranda is sort of manipulated into uh, her love for Ferdinand, partially because she hasn't really seen any other men. This is the first man she's allowed to see and talk to. And Prospero kind of plays the psychological game with her. Oh, I don't want you talking to him. I don't want you around him. Because she he knows she's going to rebel against that and be drawn to it even more. So she gets manipulated into this relationship. And this is a relationship that is very much about Prospero raising his own station. About him becoming going from being a duke to being married into his his offspring will now be of royal bloodlines and again this is this is what how women were viewed uh, they were viewed as the property of their uh, fathers until they became the property of their husbands now the other factor with Miranda is that uh, she's only 15 years old and he's marrying her off. This was very common in that time period, and it actually is very common up until the 1950s, that women were expected, as soon as they were old enough to fulfill the duties of a wife, uh, women were supposed to get married. Um, there wasn't an idea that there was uh, this period where there was they were teenagers and they weren't old enough. The concept of a teenager doesn't come along until the 1950s. You were a child and then you were an adult. And this is the way people were looked at up until the 1950s. In the 1950s, because of psychology, people started to realize that, no, there's actually this stage in between where you are not a child and you are not an adult. You're a teenager. You don't have a mind like a child and your mind is also not fully functioning like an adult. Um, but Miranda's needs and wants aren't really of concern. As long as she marries uh, someone in a higher station, uh, that's the only thing that is uh, important. And so she's much more just a bargaining chip uh, for her father. She, she's much more of sort of a lever to get him into a higher position um, than she is as a person in herself. Um, you know, he, Prospero doesn't worry about whether uh, the man she sets him up, he sets her up with is going to be a good husband. He has a good position, and that's the only thing that matters. You know, the concept of will she be happy with this, with this man doesn't even play into it. And this reflects the attitudes of the time period, of Shakespeare's time period, towards women. Um, that if a woman married well, that was the best she could hope for. Uh, love wasn't really a consideration, especially for the upper classes. Now, for the lower classes, it was a little different. Nobody owned anything anyways in the lower classes, so marriages did tend to be much more uh, about love. Uh, but when you're getting into the aristocracy and into the nobility and into the royalty, uh, those marriages were almost never about love. They were almost 100% about family alliances. And so you can see Miranda is sort of this bargaining chip. Uh, she's not uh, taken into consideration. And she is a child. She's 15 in this play. Um, 
and you know she trusts her father her father has raised her kind of as the only one in her life so she has no other guides except for him so of course once she gets pushed in this direction she's not really going to question it too much she's just going to go in that direction okay uh, i'm going to break off for there uh, i hope all of you are doing well and i hope all of you are staying safe